Uh, every week at noon, Kale is here. Every week at, on Thursdays at noon, Kale is here preaching through the book of 1 Peter. Now, we realize that many of you can't come to just hang out here for an hour with us, but uh, and you certainly can if, if you so choose. But if you want to jump online, you can watch the live feed if you've got a lunch break or if you're at home, and you can watch him preach through that book. And we're wanting to give him opportunities to be able to preach more and more and more. Uh, he has already done, a, like even with small group leadership, he's already done a lot of preaching in his life, but we want to give him even more opportunities. But also, we want that to be uh, for you and for your edification. And so if you miss it, the Facebook live feed, you can jump on our website or on the iTunes uh, subscription and his podcast, we, we post them on our podcast. So you can get on there and, and check that out if you, uh, if you would like. And then there was a third thing, but I forgot it. So why don't we pray? Christchurch Collective. Um, that wasn't it, so there could have been four things. But uh, Christchurch Collective. Uh, one of the things that God has blessed our church with is a big, large group of people, percentage-wise, that are artistic or that can build, or that can write music. Really, there's a collection of people here that are gifted in the arts, and we wanted to provide an outlet for you to be able to encourage and edify and use your giftings to be able to uplift the saints. And so we are coming out with a quarterly publication, a book, basically, or a magazine, basically. This, this first magazine will be 38 pages long. It will come out uh, along with the season. So this is issue one. Uh, winter, and several people in here we kind of uh, selected to be able to contribute to this, this first edition. But if you are a writer, if you are an artist, if you draw, if you do whatever it may be, we have some pictures that are in there that people have painted. Uh, we want to include photography. We have photography in there, poetry, uh, short stories, um, just prose in general. We have all sorts of things. I learned the word prose this week. That's why I wanted to include the word prose in there. Um, but we have all sorts of stuff that, uh, that I think really are going to be for the edification of the body and I think also may be a way uh, to be evangelistic, be able to put those at a coffee shop or wherever it may be. But it's going to be really, really nice. Jordan has put countless hours into putting this together um, and it's going to just be a really neat thing. So quarterly, we'll come out with that. If you want to contribute to Christchurch Collective, if you want to write or put a poem, whatever it may be, submit that to us and we will edit it preview it, work with you on it, and then, then it can go to publication in our quarterly, uh, quarterly Christchurch Collective. So that's exciting. It'll be here in about two weeks, week and a half, two weeks. All right, week and a half or two weeks. So that's exciting. We're starting the book of Jude. We're going to be in the book of Jude for seven weeks, and uh, Jude wants for his hearer, okay, he wants for mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied, to be multiplied. So all that would read it, all that would hear this book, his desire for them would be the multiplication of three great things. And I think of all those things, those three things, all of us in here would say, give me some of that. I'll take a multiplication of some mercy. I'll take a multiplication of some love. And I'll take a multiplication of some peace. So this morning, out of the gate, we're going to get love, peace. We're going to get mercy coming your way. I want some of that. I know you want some of that. Why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help. And we'll dive into the first two verses of the book of Jude. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we need your help. I stand with my brother Jude, who came a couple thousand years before me. I stand with my brother in declaring you, Jesus, our Master and Lord. We are your servants. We are sons 
to be certain of the Most High God, but we are also servants of the Lord Jesus Christ in here. And help us wrap our minds and our hearts around both of those forms of identity. That we are sons, but we are also servants. And we come together as a collection of people, bowing before you, Lord, recognizing that you are almighty, that you are bigger than everything, that you sustain this universe every single second of it by the word of your power. And we bow before you today, and we submit our lives to you, and we say that our lives are yours. We are under your ownership and lordship. We are yours. Mold us and shape us. We need to be changed. We don't come to you this morning asking you to change for us. We come this morning asking you to change us and to shape us, to build us. And so we submit to you with our big brother Jude. We call ourselves willingly your servants this morning. And we want to hear from you. Speak. Your servants are listening. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want you to get to know Jude. Jude. Who is Jude? Well, Jude was Jesus' little brother, if you didn't know. And that means, like other little brothers, he grew up in a home with siblings. And I want your imagination this morning to get going. I want it to get going together. And to stir your imagination, I want us to think about what it may have been like to grow up in the home of Joseph and Mary with Jesus as your big brother. Let's get to know Jude a little bit. I remember growing up with Jesus. I looked up to my big brother. We all did, really. When I think about him, I remember several things, but he was, I remember, the best carpenter I ever met. He was so good. And he was always such a hard worker. He would be around and he would teach me how to build and which tools were the best for what jobs. But that was when we were a little older. I remember some other things when we were younger. I remember wrestling on the floor with Jesus. I loved it. He would even let me pin him to the floor. He would rough house with me. <laughs> but I was never scared of him. But we all knew, we all knew he was stronger than us. He was so caring. I was told that he taught me how to walk and talk. I remember several times I skinned my knee and he would bandage my knee up. It really is amazing how we survived all the crazy things we did. He was always the life of the party. You know, he never lost his temper, although he would get angry about the right things. I remember that clearly. But it was a purposeful sort of anger. My big brother Jesus, he wouldn't fly off the handlebars. He was calculated. He was always intentional. And oh my goodness, was he wise. I remember the wisdom of my brothers, my brother Jesus. He knew how to be patient with me when I didn't understand Moses. He knew the Torah better than all of us, but he never made us feel stupid. He was an amazing student. I remember Jesus sitting out by the fire and he would memorize. He had memorized the words spoken from Sabbath earlier that morning. And he would just be quoting it. I was astonished how natural everything came to him. It was like he had a photographic memory of, or something, but it never stopped him from studying. He was always studying. It was as if he was learning from his heart, if that's possible. The only odd thing was we would always hear him praying, and he would be praying to our dad. It was the weirdest thing. 
On top of all that, he was really funny. He was hilarious, Jesus. I remember my big brother could get me laughing more than anyone else. And it wasn't that he wasn't serious, but he really, really could laugh. He laughed so much that it made me laugh. I mean, a gut laugh. I mean, snot would come out of her nose. It would like we'd be crying because we enjoyed being around him so much. And he would tell stories and he would act out the parts complete with distinct voices for each character. You know, really, I could go on and on. And that's why I'm so confused with him lately. It's been painful to hear the things that he's claiming about himself. My brothers and I were so conflicted. We don't believe what he's saying. In fact, to be honest, at this point, I think he's out of his mind. This really isn't like him at all. This is not like him. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 20, 21, we get this. Then he went home and crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. In John chapter 7, verse 1 through 5, it says this. After Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be openly known. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. This is Jude. Jude grew up with Jesus. He watched his life, watched his character. But as Jesus began his ministry and began making the claims that he made, his brothers rejected those claims and thought he was crazy. To say he was a skeptic wouldn't go far enough. If he was presented with C.S. Lewis' argument, Jesus is either liar, or lunatic, or Lord, before Jesus' resurrection, Jude would have answered back, I think he's a lunatic. He's out of his mind. This is Jude, Jesus' little brother. What's going to happen to Jude? Is anything going to change? Is he going to always think that Jesus is a madman? Well, we're going to take a look. Is there hope for skeptics? All of us in our lives know people who, just like Jude, may even have been in proximity to Jesus, grown up in the church, been around Christians, and yet don't believe. They explicitly would say, I do not believe in him. Is there hope for skeptics like that? Is there hope for hard-hearted people, our neighbors, for this community? There's, right now, in this area, within like 10 miles from here, 15 miles from here, there's at least 35,000 people that are not gathering for worship right now to worship Jesus. At least. They're home, or some of them are out hunting. Hank, Taylor. Uh, okay? But they're not here. They're not gathering for worship anywhere. Is there hope for people who are skeptical? What's going to happen with the skeptic Jude? Yes, there is hope. As we look in this book, the first two verses in particular, we're going to uncover three things. First, we're going to discover who wrote the book, which is Jude. And then second, we're going to see who the book was written to. So why was this letter written and who was it written to? If I wrote, write a letter and put an address on it, the address indicates who it's written to. 
And then in that letter, I will have some intent. I will have some things that I want to communicate to the person I'm sending it to. Jude is the same way. Jude wrote it. He's writing it to a group of people, and he has some thoughts and intentions of his heart that he wants to communicate. The very thoughts and intention of the Lord himself. So first, who wrote the book? Look at verses 1 and 2. Let's read it all, and then let's answer our first question, who wrote the book? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Jude identifies himself out of the gate. Who wrote the book? Jude. And then, to qualify who he is, he says that he is a servant of Jesus and the brother of James. It seems like a common introduction. It seems like an introductory letter that Paul would write, that Peter would write, that James may write. It seems kind of normal, but if we kind of pick up our shovels and we dig a little bit, we'll see something else that's here, something magnificent. Because Jude is not simply a servant of Jesus. He is James' brother, he tells us. But in Matthew and Mark, we learn that not only is he James' brother, he is Jesus' little brother. Jesus' half-brother. The skeptic brother Jude is now telling us that he is a servant of his big brother Jesus. From skepticism to faith. Now this was his chance, his opportunity to leverage his relationship he had with Jesus. To open this letter, if this was me, if I was Jesus' little brother, that's the first form of identification that I would put in my letter. I would make sure you knew it. And it would carry some weight, I would think. My name's Jared, I'm Jesus' brother, so listen up. I've got the dirt. Well, there's not really dirt on Jesus. Mainly it's dirt on myself, but uh, I've got some stories about Jesus that you would love to hear. And in fact, I've got some words of wisdom for you. Listen to me because I'm Jesus' brother. That's not what Jude does. It's fascinating. He willingly says that I'm James' brother, but he calls himself a servant of Jesus. It's fascinating. He doesn't say, I'm his brother. He does say, I'm Jesus' servant. Now, this is fascinating. In your Bibles, you should see, next to the word servant, a little number, and it should say one. Is that correct? Look all in your Bibles. Look down. should be a one, just like there is. One, one. Let's see. Uh, it's, well, it's not on there, but in your Bibles, you should have a little one. At the bottom, it should say, at the bottom, it should say doulos. I may be pronouncing it wrong, but that's my best shot at Greek. The word actually means slave. Now, the reason that modern translations translate the word doulos into servant and not slave is to, uh, is to make sure that it is not associated with modern colonial American slavery. Um, so not to confuse that. Uh, the language can be quite sharp. It can be certainly controversial. But I think it's important for us to understand the word servant and the word slave because slave is the actual meaning. So this is the profound statement here. Not only is Jude not telling us that he is the brother of Jesus, but he is saying that I, the little brother of Jesus, are the, I am a servant. I am owned by my big brother. And in verse 4, he says that Jesus is his master and Lord. Now, which little brother in here would willingly say about your big brother, I am his slave? Fascinating. Consider the transformation from he is out of his mind, from I don't believe in him, to he is my master and Lord and I am his servant. And I want you to know that more than I want you to know that I'm his brother. Any name droppers in here? 
If you met somebody, yeah, I met Blake Shelton, or whoever you met in the Christian world, it's I met Matt Chandler. I met John Piper. For goodness sake, Kale and Kelly named their cat Piper. Yes, they are weird. Pray for them. Okay? Name droppers. This is his opportunity. This is his opportunity to say, hey, look at me, look at me, I'm his brother. And he says, I'm his slave. This is not simply Jude's story. It really isn't. We too have found freedom, freedom in being a slave of Jesus, being owned by God. We, a lot in here, we talk about being sons and daughters of the living God. We sing about it. And it is absolutely true. And it is a beautiful picture of being sons of God, being, being at the table with, with God, with the Trinity. We are sons of the living God, but we are also servants. We are slaves. We are owned. And we are finally free. So this is our story too. There is a slavery that looks like freedom and a freedom that looks like slavery. And Jude is not saying this in some sort of weird, sad, mopey way. Freedom is being owned by Jesus, being a servant and a slave. We are finally free to lay down our dreams, lay down our plans, lay down what we want our life to look like. And we are finally free to submit to a living God and say, God, replace my plans Replace my dreams. Replace the direction of my life with what you want for me. That's freedom. We live in a world trapped to their own desires and trapped to their own plans. And we, the body of Christ, get to say, I'm servants of the Most High God. My life is not my own. And I am finally free. Friends, that is good news. We are not our own. This is Jude, the slave brother of Jesus. Well, who did he write the letter to? So we've answered the first question, who wrote it? Who did he write the letter to? Well, he wrote the letter to, there's three uh, identifying points here. Uh, He tells us the called, the beloved, and the kept. He's writing to a group of people that are called, a group of people that are beloved, and a group of people that are kept. So like any three-point sermon has, three points. We already have multiple points, but now there's three sub-points. He writes first to the called, to the called people. Called people. Who are the called? So this letter isn't to just everybody in the world. It's not just to a group of people, a group of Christians in one particular place. This is a letter to the called. Well, what does it mean to be called? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 through 24 has a really awesome section about being called, and I just want to read it. Real quick, 21 through 24 in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. It says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. Now let me just step back for a second. If you ever get the opportunity to preach or teach, I want you to hear this. No matter how eloquent, no matter how good the presentation, no matter what, the folly of what we preach that's not meaning the content is folly. It means the world looks at this and they think, well, that's, that's nothing. This is humiliating in the right sort of way to preachers not to think too much of themselves and their presentations. The best sermon I could ever preach falls woefully short of the glory of God. Whether I get up here and hit a home run 
or get up here and preach and it's terrible and I feel like crawling in a hole and not talking to anybody, which happens, by the way, sometimes with preachers. Little known fact about preachers, well, it's actually pretty well known, is sometimes you get done preaching and you just want to, just don't talk to me, leave me alone, I feel terrible. No matter what, even if I get up here and preach the best sermon I could possibly preach, it falls woefully short of the glory that God deserves. And yet, through that, through broken people preaching and through broken people evangelizing, God calls people to Himself. Through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So even through the folly of bad preaching even, even through TV preaching like Joel Osteen, God is saving people through the folly of that being preached. Now how powerful is that? That God, I've met people a guy at the last church I went apart, he, got, he became a Christian through watching Joel Osteen. Now, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, you will after that statement. Seriously. Through the folly of what we preach to save those who, are, who, who believe. Verse 22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are being called, this is it, he's writing to the called, to those who are being called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, in this room, if you're a Christian, okay, when we hear the word call, I, I kind of think about picking up the phone and calling somebody. But the reality of the call of God upon our lives is this effectual call, this summoning that God does, where He cries out, Come home to our heart. When He brings conviction, He calls His own to Himself. And you and I, if we are walking with the Lord today at some point in our lives, and even into today, we were called effectually. We changed our direction because of the grace of God, because of that call. Our ears were tuned in and we heard the sheep hear the voice of God. We heard God speak and He changed our lives. He called. Have you been called? And if you have been called, if you're walking with Jesus, your eyes have been opened, your heart has been opened, your sheep, the sheep hear His voice. He has called me. And this letter is to those who have heard His call and believed in Him. To the called. So beloved, in here, this letter is for you. Have you, have you been called? Have you been saved? Have you been born again? Then this letter is for you. Jude has some things for you. And not just Jude. Over these next seven weeks, the Holy Spirit of God has some things for you. To the called. But that's not it. His description of who this letter is to goes, it goes beyond just being called. He says, to the beloved in God the Father. Beloved or loved dearly in God the Father. Uh, the love of God in the Scriptures is both simple and it's very, very complex. The love of God is both universal and it's very, very particular and specific. It's robust. Most of you have heard that the word love that is translated in English, there's five Greek words for love. There's a, there's a fullness to love that we get bits and pieces of and we've all heard the bit uh, uh, you know, saying that I and I really do, this is the truth, I really do love bacon and eggs. Really. Crispy bacon. Jordan loves squishy bacon. Ransom likes turkey bacon. 
I really love bacon. But everyone in here knows when I say that I love bacon, that I don't love bacon the same way that I love Jordan, Ransom, and Valor. No one would argue something so ridiculous. But in large part, when we think about the love of God, we have a very flat view of being beloved in God the Father. We live in a very egalitarian world. Everyone gets a trophy when they play sports. Most of us are of the generation that remembers that that would just be bewildering to you when you were young. Why did they lost? Why are they getting a trophy? That's what I would be thinking. We just beat them. We crushed them. They should be crying in a corner somewhere. Why are they out there getting a trophy? We believe in sameness. We believe in full equality. If God gifts us, He should all gift us the exact same way. He loves us the exact same way. He showers His blessings upon us the exact same way. It's the same across the board. But the love of God is not that way. And that's the default understanding that God loves everyone the exact same way across the board. In the exact same, just in the exact same ways. But that's not the view of God's love that the Bible presents. It really isn't. There is a fullness and a robustness there that's so much more beautiful. Jude writes to those who are called and those who are loved by the Father. There is a special and particular love that God has for those that Jude is writing. And it is unlike those that are in the world. There is a fullness and a richness to it. So it would be right to say that God loves the people of Carbondale. But if you somehow think that that means that there isn't a special or particular way that God loves you, you are missing out in experiencing God's love in a unique way. God doesn't love everyone the same way. Just like I don't love bacon and my wife the same way. But that doesn't go very well in modern circles. It doesn't go very well, unfortunately, in most churches. Many churches. It may not even be settled. It doesn't settle for it. To be honest, it's like, I just kind of wish that God just loved everybody the same way and everybody got a trophy. That's not the way it is. Specifically, those who are beloved by the Father, they are receiving this letter. Apart from Christ, here's the truth of what's, this, what's being said. Apart from Christ, you cannot have a claim on the special love of God. You simply can't. Because there's a qualifier Are you beloved by God the Father? That means that there are some that are not beloved by God the Father. I'm not saying that there are some that are not loved, but there are some that don't have this special love, this special love that Jude writes about. Called men and women, do you know of the special love that God has for you? A second question would be, do you experience it? Do you experience that? Do you know that personally that God loves you? Really? Yeah, yeah, it's in spite of you. Okay, we get that. But that he actually loves you. The God of the universe. In unique ways. And people out in this world, they have for certain the wrath of God upon them, but they do not have for certain the special love of God upon them. You do. Now, do you know it, and then do you experience that? Do you have times with the Lord where the love of God the fact that God loves me is overwhelming to you. I know everybody in here, and Jared Wilson writes about this in his book, Gospel Wakefulness. I think it's a helpful way to think about this. Not everyone in here is emotional. 
Okay, some people in here, you'll cry at a drop of a hat. Andy's like that. He's just always boohooing everywhere. You know, he'll see a flower and just cry. Okay? Some people are like that. They just, everywhere. You know, I love the sensitivity. Kurt's not here. I would say it if he was here. I love Kurt's sensitivity to the work of God. And he starts talking about the Lord and he just weeps. Other people in here, I said a few weeks ago, I talked about the guy who you've never seen cry. And if he ever cried, he would never, you would never see it because he's just stone-faced about it. And there may be just welling up in an ear. And that's it. If anything ever happened, you would never see the guy cry. Now, some people show their emotions in different ways, but everybody has an emotional life. Even if you have shut down your emotional life. And here's a question. Wherever you peak emotionally, where, where, just if you try to answer that, where do you peak emotionally? Is it tears? Do you cry? Or is emotion for you kind of like Mary when she pondered these things in her heart? Does emotion look like you sitting quiet and just thinking? What does, what does your emotional life look like? I think it would be appropriate to say that wherever your peak is emotionally, that the love of God should bring you there. Like if you haven't ever cried about the love of God, that's fine because you've probably not ever cried about anything. But if you cry when your sports team loses and never cry about the love of God, that you're beloved to the Father, you may want to ask yourself, why does my emotional level peak at lesser things? Why do other things pull out emotions in me, but the love of God doesn't? It doesn't mean that you're not specially beloved by the Father if you don't experience His love in that way. But I want to encourage you, you can experience His love, His special love. And when's the last time you've been emotionally moved that you are the beloved of the Father? Because in this world, a couple billion people claim to be Christians. They're not. But even if every single one of those two billion, that means there's about five billion that don't know God and have no claim to the special love of God. But at least those two billion do. So do they experience that? Does it mean anything to them? Does it affect the way they live their lives that they know the God of the universe loves me? And if you are beloved by the Father, if you are called and beloved by the Father over the next seven weeks, you got some information coming your way. He's writing to you. This is not just to the church back in the day. This is for us here in this building at 624 North Oakland Avenue in Carbondale. In 2017, God is speaking to you. And if you're called and beloved of the Father, God has some things for you. Third, he says the kept. This letter is not just to the called, and it's not just to the beloved, it's also to the kept. Kept for Jesus Christ. Now this is interesting as you look in the last part of verse 1, kept for Jesus Christ. A couple versions say kept by Jesus Christ. Most versions say kept for Jesus Christ, and that is important and more accurate from what I understand from commentaries and, and different things that I've looked at in the quote-unquote Greek. The more accurate representation of this, of this verse is kept for Jesus Christ. The word kept is a passive tense verse. This is important because those who are called and those who are loved are also kept for someone. Being kept. This is not something you're doing. This is something that's happening to you. So this isn't something later on we're going to be told to keep yourself in the love of God. It's kind of an odd verse. But first, 
the backdrop is you're being kept. This is passive tense. You're doing nothing about it. It is happening to you. Being kept. Kept for Jesus. Now, this is not saying that we are being kept by, let me repeat myself, Jesus, but for Jesus. Although it would be true that Jesus keeps us. He keeps us in His name. But this is amazing because we are being kept for Jesus. I want you to turn to John 17. I want you to actually turn there and I want you to see this. In John 17, we get the high priestly prayer. And I, this opened my jaw wide this week as I saw this. I, and it was, just, it was just amazing to me. Because we get in John 17, we get the high priestly prayer where Jesus is praying and very vulnerable as He's praying in the garden. He's talking to His heavenly Father. And it's been titled the high priestly prayer. And as he's praying to his father in verse 9 through 13 specifically, we're going to look at it. I want you to hear his request to the God of the universe. His heavenly father, what is his request in verse 9? I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Again, this is the particularness. It's all over the Bible. There's general love that God has for the world. There's particular love. This is for the called. He's not praying for the world. He's praying for you. He knows your name. This isn't a general mass of humans in this building. It's His beloved. I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom You have given Me. For they are Yours. And all Mine are Yours. And all Yours are Mine. And I am glorified in them. Pause. This is speaking of a great eternal covenant in eternity past. Of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Doing something for each other. Giving, loving, preparing for each other what's going to happen in the future. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father gave God the Son a gift. And God the Son agreed to come and be the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Not plan B, plan A. Theologians get in arguments back and forth about this. And you may hear the words someday, infra and supra. Lapsarianism, and you might think, well, what in the world is that? Good question, what in the world is that? But the whole point is that before the foundation of the world, God had a thought life, and He had a plan, and He gave some gifts. The Trinity gave some gifts to each other. And God the Father gave His Son a bride. And God the Son came to seek and to save that bride and die for that bride, and now the Holy Spirit is coming to make sure that that bride is gathered in for the Son, Jesus Christ. You see, God the Father gave His Son a bride, and God the Son came to rescue that bride in the Holy Spirit. So it goes like that. So this prayer is indicating the activity of God, and then Jesus has a prayer. It goes on in verse 10, all, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, listen to this, beautiful, keep them in your name. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. I want us to be united and one around the fact that we are being kept by the Heavenly Father who is answering the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. He prayed, would you keep them in my name? And here, we are being kept for Jesus Christ. Keeping the called, by keeping the called and the beloved for Jesus, God the Father is answering 
the prayer of Jesus in John 17. God is keeping us as a bride for His Son. And I want you to hear this. Because God is doing this work, we are safe in the hands of God the Father. The called and beloved will be kept until they are given to Jesus. I want you to hear this. You are safe. You are in the hands of the God of the universe. And your salvation is secure, is as secure as His grip. Now later we're going to see some people in this book who take that, because, the, because of what Jude is writing, he shouldn't have said this. Because there are people who are saying, well if God's grace, you have God's grace and have a hold on God's grace, you can go out and do whatever you want. And he's going to address that here in a second. In a little bit, like in coming weeks. So we don't make the mistake of saying, oh no, we'll just give them a law, they're not, they're not secure, they're not eternally secure. Oh no, out of the gate. Jude wants us to know, oh no, you are kept. But that means that doesn't mean that you can't go out and do whatever you want. If you understand that you're kept by the God of the universe, you will be inflamed with love for Him. That when you're weak, God hasn't abandoned you. When you've had a bad month or year, and when you've had doubt that have crept, that's crept in, God hasn't said, well, come back when you're ready, but I'm out. You are kept and secure. And I'll just say this, not to stir controversy. You can never lose your salvation because you didn't find it to begin with. God found you. You can't lose something that was given to you. He is holding you and gripping you. Therefore, love Him and follow Him and submit to Him and trust Him and quit living for yourself. We are safe in the hands of God the Father. Now, what does the author want for his recipients? As anyone who writes a letter intends, intends with, in their communication of that letter, they want what is spoken to be understood. Okay, So if I write you something, personally, if I write everybody in here, some of you have been recipients of some letters that I've sent, I want you to understand what I'm writing. I wouldn't want you to be confused by what I'm writing. I would, would have some information to give to you, and I would want you to read that information and understand it. In the same way, Jude, to, to the beloved, the beloved, or the called, the beloved, and the loved, okay, and the kept, excuse me, here's what he wants for you. And then, this is the ride that we're on for the next seven weeks, okay? <laughs> Beautiful. Three things. Verse two, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. For sins there are many, his Mercy is. We just sang about it. Where sins there are many, as mercy is more. Mercy multiplied. Now let me ask you this. Had the people that Jude, the called, the loved, the kept, had they already received mercy? You can answer this. Had they already received mercy? Yeah. But what he wants for them? More mercy. The multiplication of it. Oh, you come next week and you think, oh, this week I, I've got all the mercy I can handle. Well, next week there's more. You wake up in the morning and think, oh, I need some mercy. You know what? Mercy's going to be multiplied, Nick, to you tomorrow morning. Oh, I've had a terrible week. How about some mercy? 
That's what Jude wants for you. The multiplication of mercy to come your way. The compassion of God upon us, and it's never going to stop. Wave after wave of grace. Wave after wave of mercy. George, Casey, it's coming to you. Mercy upon mercy every single day. The mercy of God will never run dry. Anybody here tired? Physically tired. You tired? Okay, parents, grandparents, every stage of life, kids, college kids, somehow or another, people in college are tired. That doesn't make sense to me. And people in college, somehow, they think they're busy as they sleep in until noon. We get tired. God doesn't tire, and He is multiplying because He never gets tired. He never gets weary. He never is caught off guard by anything, and He has mercies, new mercies for you to have. Have you experienced it already? Yes. Is there more for you? Yes. And never be satisfied. It's weird. The mercy and the grace of God satisfies us, but it also kind of whets our appetite for more. Hey, Ransom, I want you. He's waving at me back there, my son. I want you to have mercy. Okay, there's more. It, the, the mercy of God, it's both satisfactory and it also makes us just, it's like that good steak. You had it and it's, oh my gosh, it's the best steak I've ever had. Can I have more? The grace of God is infinitely more than a Bella's steak in West Frankfurt. Place is closed now, unfortunately. The mercy of God multiplied. But secondly, peace multiplied. The multiplication of peace is needed by hearts who deal with condemnation regularly. The question, am I at peace with God? It has haunted countless souls and countless believers' souls. And it need not. Jude would have us here. The Holy Spirit of God would have us here. Peace multiplied for you. The peace of God tomorrow. Wake up wondering, am I condemned today? Wake up stumbling in the faith. Wake up, marriage, another fight. Seriously, are we going to always fight? You wake up and you... uh, whatever it may be you struggle with, you deal with, again, am I at peace with God? Well, Jude would say, yes, multiplied over and over again. It's coming for you like a freight train. And as surely as you cannot stand in front of an Amtrak coming from DuCoin to Carbondale and stop it on a dime, you can't stop the peace of God from coming your way. Multiplied over and over again. The love of God multiplied. Thirdly, he says the love of God multiplied. He wants this to you. And the love that's so common in this book, he's going to say, I desire for you to have it again and again multiplied here, there, there, five years from now. The love of God is coming your way. And you may stop your enjoyment in the same way like peace, this whole Amtrak thing. The love of God is this thing that just simply never runs out. It just keeps coming to the beloved. And no matter what you do, the love of God's coming for you anyways. It's just coming. It is there. Now you may stop your enjoyment or awareness of God's love. Let me hear you say that. You may go through seasons, decades, of having something and not even being consciously aware that the love of God has been shed abroad your heart. But the lack of awareness of God's love is a result of hard-heartedness, not the lack of it. He really, really loves you. And Jude would say, Lucas, I want 
the peace of God and the love of God and the mercy of God just to be multiplied in you. Paul, Carlene, multiplied in you over and over and over again. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God, you are also a slave of God, owned by Him. You are not your own. But you are called, and you are loved dearly by the Father, and you are kept. A question to highlight the next seven weeks. Andy, come up. We're done. Are you ready? And you invite people into this too. Are you ready for mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied to you? You want some of it? It's coming. It is coming your way. Remember his aim. Remember his desire for the recipients of this letter, for the the mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied to you. Because Jude is going to take us to some unlikely places for that goal to be accomplished. We're going to hear about judgment of false teachers. We're going to hear about some wild and crazy things through the book of Jude. But all under the banner of multiplication of mercy, peace, love coming your way. This is the journey we're on. It's going to be a wild, crazy, and fun seven weeks. Here's a question I have for you. Is he calling you today? Every week I want to ask this because I want us to be comfortable to invite our non-Christian friends. So even if you're here and everybody's here as a believer that I'm aware of or mostly, is he calling you today? So the question would be repent of your sins and believe in him. So turn from your sins and trust in Him, calling. Have you heard His call? Repent and believe. Now, beloved, beloved, all those things that are just in those first two verses, there's so much there. Even if you just have your Bible open, you're just reading those words over and over again. Just read it. Just read it as we're singing. And then let's enjoy, let's be consciously aware of what's ours. Let's not just miss it or not experience it. Let's enjoy the God of the universe who's called us, he summoned us. My goodness, we were vessels of wrath and he's made us sons and daughters and in our joy, we get to be his servants. So let's enjoy the multiplication starting this morning of love, of mercy, of peace just washing over us. Let's pray. Father, it's going to be our joy to sing to you, really. And thank you that your mercy is always more. God, we're going to get to sing some words, and these words have content and meaning, and help us to read with our eyes and sing with our hearts. Pray that joy would flood our hearts even this morning. May we have our Bibles open and we just read that. Oh my gosh. May seriously, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. Oh, does my soul need that? Holy Spirit, just lead us. I trust that you will. It's going to be our joy to sing. It's in His name we pray. Amen worship. Would you stand with me as we sing the mercy of God? Your blood speaks a better word than all the empty claims I've heard upon this earth. It speaks righteousness for me. Stand to my defense, Jesus, it's your blood. 
your blood speaks a better word than all the empty things I've heard upon this earth. It speaks righteousness for me. It stands in my defense. Jesus, it's your blood. What can wash away our sins? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood, nothing but the blood of Jesus. can wash us pure as snow welcome past the friends of God nothing but the blood nothing but your blood King Jesus Just sing with me to our master and Lord Jesus Christ Your cross testifies of grace, tells of the Father's heart to make a way for us. Now boldly we approach our earthly confidence. It's only by your blood. What can wash away our sins? What can all again nothing but the blood nothing but the blood of Jesus what can wash us pure as snow welcome past the friends of God nothing but the blood Nothing but your blood, King Jesus. 